Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles. Each of these episodes features just one story from our earlier years. If you're new to Risk, you should know that the podcast can be very uncensored. This week, a story that was first shared on the podcast in May of 2014 by Chelsea Hostetter. Now, this is a very emotional story with violence in it. Here's Chelsea now with a story we call Me and My Shadow. I've always desired approval from other people. When I was in school, I was a straight-A student. I had perfect handwriting. There was no shortage of compliments from other people. And I would always hear, wow, Chelsea, you know, you're going to do great things someday. And there's not one person who wouldn't want to hire you. And I became very reliant on other people's approval. I started crafting a persona that made myself as pleasing as possible. During this time, I got involved with two amazing women by the name of Anne and Lori. Lori was a sensitive, talented person. She's amazingly good at fashion. I'm pretty sure she taught me how to dress myself. Anne was the passionate, assertive head of our group. She was a leader in most everything. She taught me how to draw. She taught me how to think about things critically. And that's something I use even today in my design job. I met Anne and Lori when I was 13 years old in middle school. Anne and Lori and I all shared the same thing in common, which was that we liked Japanese animation. The more we talked about it, the closer we got. And the more we started realizing that we had a lot more in common. We were all artists. We were all very sensitive. We all really liked to go on adventures together. My role in the group was the smart, cheerful intellectual. So when Anne and Lori would go off on an adventure, I would be the person that would say, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, it might not actually be so smart to go against our parents' wishes. And I was definitely the good one out of the group. And I was always the one that if they wanted me to come out with them on like senior skip day in high school, I would be the one that would be clinging to her desk and going, no, I have to finish work. Towards the end of high school, we started dating and the idea and subject and topic of boys was very weird for us. I was not of the dating type at the time. And my kind of overall thought was, I just want to draw anime and, you know, I don't really care. <laughs> and so on that front, we started growing apart. And then when Anne and Lori got accepted to colleges in Texas, and then I got accepted to a college in Pittsburgh, to Carnegie Mellon. I realized that our friendship was going to be even more long distance than it originally started out being. 
Throughout my time at Carnegie Mellon, people kept saying the same things. I was a great artist. I spoke Japanese really well. That was my major at CMU. And everyone told me that I would achieve great things. And then the market crashed in 2008. And I graduated in 2009 into a really terrible economy. When I was graduating, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, talked to us. And essentially, his speech was Congratulations, class of 2009, you're screwed. That was probably the most depressing graduation speech I've ever heard from anyone. <laughs> so I couldn't find a job anywhere. I was so poor that I moved in with my parents. About a month after I had graduated, my parents announced to me over the kitchen table that. They were going to be getting a divorce after 26 years of marriage. But they thought that it would be a good idea for the two of them to stay in the same house while the divorce proceedings were going on. Everything I thought was real and right got turned on its head. Because of all of this, I slipped into a depression. It's not that I felt intensely sad, it's that I didn't feel anything. My boyfriend, who I had met at CMU in my senior year, we were living apart from each other about nine months out of the year. He would call me up on the phone, and I just couldn't feel anything. He would tell me that he loved me, and I would tell him that I loved him too, but I knew that there was really nothing behind those words. I just wanted to stay in bed all day. I would wake up in the morning and I would feel nothing. And I would try to take a shower if at all possible. And I would feel nothing. And I would go back to sleep and I would feel nothing. And that was day after day after day. So I started to fantasize about what it might be like to die. Fantasizing about suicide fulfilled two things for me. And one was that it was an escape. I felt like I could get out. I feel like I could feel something. The second thing that I wanted to do with it was make a scene. And this is something that's hard for me to admit because not a lot of people would say that they would want people to watch them die. But at the time, I had parents who were very busy with divorce papers. I had a boyfriend who was busy with his senior year of college. I had friends I had connected with in middle school and high school years, but they were busy finding jobs of their own. And everyone just seemed too busy to notice what was going on with me as I slowly deteriorated. When I fantasized about walking in front of a car, And I would feel an intense pain. It would be glorious because at least I would be able to feel something. If anything, I would hear people screaming and people would notice. And 
I would be able to just slip into nothingness right after that. I wouldn't have to deal with anything after that. In the midst of my suicidal thoughts, I witnessed something that would change the way that I thought about suicide forever. It was three days before my birthday. I was sitting on the couch, petting my cat. Uh, I was sitting with my boyfriend, Matt. As I'm recalling it, I remember that I didn't even hear the gunshot happen. All I heard was someone wailing outside and my cat dug her claws into my thighs as if there was something wrong and I just felt compelled to run outside and see what was going on. And as the wails became more clear to me, I could hear someone going, oh my God, my baby, my baby. And what I saw was my neighbor's wife, she was covered in blood, holding a shotgun on her shoulder, and she was holding the corpse of her husband in the front yard. Everything was covered in blood. It wasn't the way that I had fantasized about what blood looked like. It wasn't dark, movie, fake blood. It was bright, real, and terrifying blood right in the middle of the daytime. She continued wailing and sirens started screaming and people started gathering around the scene. My neighbors turned away from the body and started conversing with one another, like small talk. I was the only person who was turned towards the body of my neighbor and I focused in on his ear. The shotgun had done some really awful things to what was now him lying on the ground, but his ear was intact. And so as I was staring at it, I realized that while everyone else was pretending like this was just some awful scene, this was a real human being that had shot himself. And I focused in on that feeling because to me, it was the only thing that was preventing me from going back into that dead space of nothingness. I started to think back on a conversation that he and I had about sports about two days ago. I don't actually like sports. I don't actually know if he did either, but we were talking about the subject with such passion that both of us really seemed to convince ourselves that we were actually sport fans. I couldn't tell that he was lying, and I don't think anyone else could tell that I was lying either. I lied to my boyfriend about the way I was feeling. I lied to my parents about the fact that I was depressed and I'd been lying to my friends, telling people that it was okay and I was just feeling a little sad and not really 
impressing upon them the weight of my situation. After I had thought about our conversation, I turned my face back to my boyfriend and his face was white as a sheet. He had an expression on his face that I could only describe as blank horror. As he looked at me and looked at my neighbor, and that was the moment that I realized my suicide could have more of an effect than just on myself. It could have an effect on every single person that I knew. And I thought as I looked at his face that this is the face that he would make if I died. When I thought about that, I immediately felt a gush of just sickness, total nausea at what I was considering doing. And that was the first emotion I ever had in maybe three, four months. And I felt overjoyed. I felt overjoyed to be so sick with myself. It felt like I was alive again. I realized that no one else is going to dig me out of this hole. And so I have to do this myself. I started going to therapy groups. I started telling the truth to people. If people asked me how I was doing, I would tell them, you know, I'm depressed. It's hard. I can't get out of bed. I don't know what to do. I don't feel anything. I need help. And celebrating the small victories like getting out of bed and showering or feeling love for my boyfriend. And I realized that my neighbor, even though he doesn't know that he helped me, I think that if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be alive today. While I started doing all of this therapy, I started realizing that the more people I told that I was depressed, the better I felt and the more support I got. And so I realized that I had to tell my friends from middle school and high school, Anne and Lori, about the fact that I was depressed and the fact that I was struggling. I called up Anne and so I told her, you know, I'm depressed. I think I'm getting better. But at one point, I thought that I was going to commit suicide. And her response was, that's nice, Chelsea. And it was just totally baffling because it was completely different than what responses I'd received from my parents, from Matt, from the people at therapy. It didn't make any sense to me. And so... I tried again to tell her, look, this is something that's happening to me and this is a part of my life right now. She replied to me, you know, Chelsea, I really wish that you wouldn't be so selfish. I wish that you'd really consider other people when you're talking to them and I'd really like it if we didn't talk about this again. After I got off the phone with her, I thought, you know, I felt like I could solve problems by being selfless, by shielding people from 
the fact that I was in such a deep hole, but I think this problem I had to solve by being selfish. I called up Anne again and said, look, I don't think we can be friends anymore. At least not right now, because if you can't see me as I am right now, I can't do this. <laughs> I hung up the phone on her as she started to go on a tirade about how selfish and ignorant I was. I have to say that I think the reason why that happened was because I was the smart, intellectual, cheerful one in the group, and I was perfect. I couldn't do anything wrong. And so the fact that I didn't fit into that anymore, the fact that I was thinking about jumping in front of a car, the fact that I'm a human being, it doesn't work with a created persona. It's probably about a year, year give or take, after Anne and I broke off our friendship, Lori said to me that if I wasn't friends with Anne, I couldn't be friends with her anymore either. So that's how I lost my two best friends at the time. I think I realized the value of friends who could see the ugly side of me and not look away. And now I have so many close and amazing friends. My boyfriend and I are about to be engaged and every time I tell this story to my friends or family, I feel so close to them because they know a part about me that is dark, a part about me that's hidden, and it's a part about me that flies in the face of being a perfect, cheerful girl. Getting relationships that support you in, in a time that you don't have any hope left is to me the greatest gift that you could give yourself and supporting others in their dark times is the greatest gift that you could give to someone else. That is all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.